Wow, I'll tell you. Good morning, everybody. Um, we, have, we have inhaled more smoke in the last week than we do in an average year. And these fires have been a vivid reminder that the things that we hold dear and often idolize can be gone in a moment, can be gone in an instant. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, here's what Jesus said. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That captures the essence of the faith we've been talking about. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We just, we're going to read in just a moment that without faith we can't please God. It's essential in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God. And today we're going to look at three lives, men of God who lived before the flood. We're going to see what fruit God produced in their lives, what fruit the root of faith produced in their lives. And what I hope you'll see is that faith that pleases God often produces surprising results. Things don't always work out the way we want them to. But God knows best, His ways are right, and He can be trusted. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. And please stand with me as we read God's Word. This morning we're going to read verses 4 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the Word of God. And here's what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts... And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch, when he was taken up, so was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Lord God, we love you, we love your word, and we pray you teach us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first we see Abel. Abel. Abel is the perfect example of someone who worshiped God with a pure heart and good motives. And as we know, his brother Cain, whose name is a little more well known, did not. According to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. You're going to want to go to Genesis, the early chapters, because we're going to look a little bit at, verse, at chapter 4 and at chapter 5 and at chapter 6 this morning. But according to Genesis chapter 4 
that Cain and Abel were the first and second sons of Adam and Eve. We all know that. They were born after the fall of man, and Cain was a farmer, and he committed murder, the first murder, by killing his brother Abel, who was a shepherd. After God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but accepted Abel's. Now, it isn't explained in the text why God uh, accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's, but there are hints of why. You see, Abel gave of the fat portions from the first of his flock. He gave the first, he gave the best. His sacrifice to God was an outward expression of his faith. Let's pick up their story at verse 3. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground... And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door... And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The first murder. What can be said of Abel? What we can say about Abel this morning is that he offered his heart to God. He offered his heart to God. His sacrifice to God was acceptable not for its material content, not for what it was in his hands, but it was because it was an outward expression of a devoted and obedient heart. His heart attitude and subsequent actions were such that his example of faithfulness lives on today in people of faith. See, Hebrews 11 is going to emphasize it and a crucial link between the heart and the actions. The inward stance, the inward posture, and the external actions. Cain's actions revealed his hard attitude. Revealed what he was really like. He didn't do what was right. We see that in Genesis 4-7. God said, if you do what is right, it will go well with you. But he revealed that his heart, his actions revealed that his heart was not right spiritually. Wasn't in the right place. His brother, in contrast, was righteous, according to Hebrews 11.4. The author is tying right now this example of Abel back to that Old Testament quote we keep referring to in Hebrews 10, verses 37 and 38, where God said, My righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. See, Genesis 4, 5 tells us that when God rejected Cain's offering, he became very angry. Very angry. Revealing just how shallow his devotion to God really was. God pleaded with him to do what was right. Warning him with a powerful picture of sin crouching like a monster at his door. But Cain... Remain silent and defiant. 
It's an interesting thing to think about, but Cain's parents were talked into sin. Cain could not be talked out of it. James chapter 1 and verse 19 through 21 instructs us, Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But see, Cain would not receive God's word to him. God's direct word to him. It seems that Cain was determined to stay angry. His heart was full of venom. And instead of turning from his sin and accepting God's rebuke and repenting, he directed his hatred for God towards his brother and he rose up and he killed him. Augustine understood this story to illustrate a deeper truth about Cain and Abel. He explained it this way in City of God. Cain was the firstborn and he belonged to the city of men. After him was born Abel, who belonged to the city of God. See, Augustine saw that each was representative of radically different approaches to God. There was the way of Cain, the way of unbelief, the way of self-righteousness, the way of man-made religion. In the New Testament letter, Jude, we see an example of those who were in league with Cain, in Jude, in 10, it says, these men revile things they do not understand and things that they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, but by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have gone in the way of Cain. First, first John chapter 3, 12 tells us why Cain killed his brother. It tells us that his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. One of, William Blake's, one of William Blake's most famous paintings was of Cain's murder of Abel. And in the picture, in the background, lies Abel's lifeless body. And in the foreground, Cain is running away, his, body, his torso twisted looking back, and his hands over his ears so that he would not hear his brother's blood crying out from the ground. See, in contrast with Cain is the way of Abel, the way of faith. It is described here in Hebrews 11. You see, by faith he was commended as a righteous man. God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he's been dead a long time. The writer says that he still speaks. How so? How, how does Abel still speak? How does his blood still speak? Abel's blood in in Genesis cried out to God for vindication. And today it speaks to us as a witness to his faith. A witness to the faith he had when he believed God. The writer of Hebrews attributes a greater voice to someone else's blood though. He attributes a greater voice to the blood of Jesus because it speaks better than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all sin. God desires devoted hearts in his worshipers. Devoted hearts. Abel came to God with a submissive, humble heart. It's significant in this great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, Hall of Fame of Faith, that the first example, the first human example given is that of a worshiper. 
Someone who is worshiping God. Worship is basic to everything else we do in life. And where there's authentic faith with God as its focus, authentic worship follows. God-pleasing faith produces a heart attitude that offers itself to God. Abel offered his heart to God. Now the next example we see is that of Enoch. There's not a lot said about Enoch in the Bible. Only a couple times. A little bit in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament. Now if you think that God was majoring on the importance of a heart attitude with Abel, it only builds with Enoch. Uh, The way we approach God and others reveals a lot about our true spiritual stance or posture. Over the last 10 years or so, I've tried to work on my posture a bit. When I was a kid, my, my dad was always saying, don't, don't slouch. Stand up straight. Put your shoulders back and all that kind of stuff. So I have to work at that one. And I've got a buddy who's a physical therapist. And if he's ever in the congregation and I'm, I'm up, I, I stand straighter. <laughs> I just stand a lot straighter. But posture is important. You don't want to slouch. You don't want to droop your shoulders. You want to stand straight. You want to walk tall. It's good for you. So I've heard. (laughs) But spiritually, Enoch stood tall in his day. He walked tall as a giant of the faith. He did something not many of his contemporaries did. We see it in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Genesis chapter 5 is a very interesting chapter. It, it, It recalls... All the, uh, a lot of the descendants of Adam, okay? But the, 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 the morbidness of, of the chapter comes out in this. You've got the person's name, how long they lived, who they were the father of, and how many days they lived, and then he died. Period. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And then you come to verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. 969 years. Then Enoch, and here's the difference right here. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, a relatively short span in his age. Enoch, verse 24 says, walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't die like everyone else? No. He was walking with God, and all of a sudden, the only thing that happened to him was that God took him up to heaven. He didn't die. There's only two people in the Bible that that's ever happened with, and that's Enoch and Elijah. Why was Enoch taken? I mean, he was this man of great character. His name means initiated, disciplined, dedicated. What did he do? What did, a- what did Enoch do? Enoch pleased God in his generation. Quite simply, it's an easy one to get. He, he pleased God in his generation. He was a man of great character, but he was most famous for what happened to him, not what he did. Yes, he walked with God, but the big deal we remember is that God took him up alive. God raptured him. The faithful believer Enoch was taken out of this world without experiencing death. 
Why was he taken? The reason was the character of his life. He lived by faith and he pleased God. Enoch lived in such a way that honored God when others in his day did not. We learn from Jude chapter, uh, excuse me, we learn from Jude verse 14 that Enoch was a prophet. Jude 14. Again, speaking of people that were in league with Cain and Balaam and Korah and other wicked people. In verse 14 it says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. And interestingly, what is quoted here is the apocryphal book of Enoch. And it says this, this is what Enoch prophesied. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly, of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. There's a lot of ungodliness here. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. Enoch walked with God, but he lived on, walked with God in an ungodly generation. Faith and pleasing God go hand in hand. The scriptures tell us that he walked with God. Now, it says that he was well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew phrase, walked with God. They mean the same thing. And there may even be an allusion, again, back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which speaks of God's lack of pleasure in the one who shrinks back from following him. But the metaphor of walking shows us how we please God. I like to walk. I walk a lot. I walk a lot more than I used to run, and I used to run a lot. But now I walk, and I actually have learned to like it. But most of the time, I walk alone. Most of the time, it's with my sermon notes, trying not to hit poles as I walk down the street. But walking with someone else requires uh, several mutual agreements. If you're going to walk with someone else, you must agree on the destination, where you're going to go. You can't walk together and go in a different direction. Enoch was heading in God's direction. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. Now also, if you're walking together, you must follow the same path. You can be walking in the same direction, but going on different paths. Another requirement in walking together is the two must not only go to the same place on the same path, They must go at the same pace. Now, when I'm walking with my wife, Angela, what I usually say is, slow down. Let's walk together. You're walking too fast. Enoch was in step with God. You're walking with someone, you've got to walk in step. Going in the same place, same direction, same path, same pace. Galatians 5.25 tells us that we ought to keep in step with the Spirit. Don't run on ahead. Don't lag behind. Stay right where God wants you to be. You see, Enoch's faith produced two things. Fellowship and righteousness. Fellowship, close personal fellowship with God and righteous life. Righteous living. The primary meaning of walk is fellowship. Or sacred communion is another way to say it. When two walk to the same place on the same path at the same pace, like Enoch and God did for 300 years, they're in fellowship. They're in agreement. 
There is closeness. Faith and a righteous walk with God are companions. Faith produces the walk with God that is pleasing to him. Micah 6.8, we sing it as a song. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of him. What does it say? Since I just forgot. Walk justly and love mercy. And walk humbly with our God. Love, justice, mercy, walking with God. Now rounding out these examples, you've got Abel, you've got Enoch, and then you've got Noah. Now these are all three people that lived before the flood. Before the flood. He was, Noah was the first person to act in faith based upon a word from God. God told him something. He couldn't see the visible proof, but he went and did it. He did what God said. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. God sees the sinfulness of mankind. God saw their wickedness was great upon the earth. God saw that every intent of their hearts was only evil continually. And he says something to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it outside, inside and out with pitch. Here's how you shall make it. And he tells how long. And then he says in verse 17, I'm bringing a flood upon the earth, a flood of water, to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons, and wa- your sons wives with you. It's an interesting thing. We know what a flood is. We know what a boat is. Most likely, Noah had never experienced rain. He had never seen a flood, never needed a boat. What can be said of Noah? He reacted to God's message with religious awe, reverence. And he acted upon it. Look at Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He acted reverently on God's message, giving evidence of his spiritual condition before God. He acted on the divine warning regarding the flood that was yet to come and did so in holy fear. It means he played close attention to what God said. He had a reverent focus on God's instructions. I asked someone yesterday, how did Noah know? And the response back was, God told him and he believed it. That's the simple answer. That's the truthful answer. God told him, and he believed. In fact, in in verse 7 of Hebrews 11, it says that by that he condemned the world. How did Noah condemn the world? It depends on how we take the Greek word cosmos, translated world. Now, if the word cosmos refers to the physical earth, then we would interpret the sentence like this. Noah, by acting by faith when he built the ark, announced the condemnation of the earth to destruction. 
Okay, he announced that God, the world would be destroyed because of uh, God's impending flood. But if we take cosmos to mean the fallen human race, then it means that Noah condemned the conduct of his fellow men by the contrast between his faith and their unbelief. This is most likely the case. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached righteousness. He was not only righteous, but he preached righteousness. He denounced the wickedness of his generation, his contemporaries, but it seems that no one listened. So Noah, building an ark, bore witness to the unseen God in his word and was a prophetic rebuke to the unbelieving generation of which he was a part. Their unbelief stands in contrast to Noah's faith toward God. He was one who lived by faith, confidently bold with regard to God's word. And not only did he condemn the human race of his time by his faith, but by his amazing display of faith, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, as we read at the end of verse 7. This means he became a partaker of the blessings that God gives to those who trust him, to those who believe. Noah inherited righteousness by faith. Now, Noah was said to be righteous by virtue of his faith. But in his act of building the ark and putting his family and everything else in it and shutting the door, he showed his spiritual condition. He gave evidence of his spiritual condition. This is the kind of faith that brings one the righteousness of God. Any other kind of faith is not real faith in God. It is an intellectual assent towards him. But James 2.19 tells us the demons believe and shudder. They have an intellectual assent. But see, God must be the object of saving faith. It was true with Noah. It was true with Enoch. It was true of Abel. And God wants it to be true of us. With Jesus as the focus of our faith. See, we look at Abel and Enoch and Noah, and their examples ought to teach us. Look at verse 6. We read, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 11.6 shows us that the life of faith consists of uh, several things. Like Abel and Enoch and Noah before us, it means that we come to God and seek him earnestly. The word means we keep on seeking until we find. We come to him with all our hearts. You see, having a relationship with God means to be radically open to him and having constant conversation with him. Radically open and constantly conversing. It means we believe God exists. How can a person come to God in prayer and not believe he exists? Is that absurd or what? It doesn't make any sense. God exists and he is our creator and he is our sustainer and he is the lover of our souls. So we can fly to his bosom. He is the lover of our souls. It means that we're confident that God will reward those who exercise faith. See, when you and I express confidence in the living God, we do not go unnoticed by God. We may go unnoticed by everyone else. That's quite fine. That's quite all right. We may not be noticed or recognized or rewarded this side of heaven for our faith. But God is the one from whom our praise will come. His well done is the one we seek. 
See, in Abel, Enoch, and Noah, we see that the root of faith produces fruit that remains. God-pleasing faith produces a harvest of righteousness. These were righteous men, not in and of themselves, but with God as the focus of their faith. And like Abel, we need to offer our hearts to God. Like the widow's coin, it's, it's not what we give, but how and why we give our hearts to God. Like Enoch, our ambition must be to please God. In Matthew 5, 16, it says, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And those good works will never save us, but they give evidence of true faith in Christ. See, Enoch, he lived in close fellowship with God. And if we're to do likewise, we need to engage. We need to engage in things that make for close fellowship with God. Especially God's word and prayer. Again, the two most important disciplines. And that both of those take time and focused attention. Time with God. Focused attention upon him. And you know what? Life is so hard. There are so many things that if we just go by what we see, we will be discouraged. We will be drawn off course. We will be uh, tempted to give up. But, like Noah, we must walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith and not by sight. See, the only way we become heirs of the righteousness which is by faith is through Jesus Christ... Belief that he died for our sins and trust him alone for salvation and for everything else in the Christian life. That he starts us in faith and he takes us all the way to the finish. See, all who trust in Jesus receive the righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. But see, if we're going to walk by faith, it starts with Jesus It continues with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. And I know there are times when you might feel like I'm just always just saying, just trust Jesus. But what other answer will work? What other answer will work? I would rather be fixated on Jesus and not have the other answers. And allow God to apply it to our life and show us the way to walk. As we take steps of faith. As we saw last week, this is the way, walk in it, whether you turn to the right or the left. Your ears will hear a word behind you. We'll be taking steps of faith. Trusting in an unseen God and in a word that changes our souls. The writer of Hebrews, what we see in this first few examples is that he has begun to prove his point. He has begun to prove his point that God is pleased by those who trust him. Quite simply. These are the first three examples in a long line of people of faith. And faith is more important to God than any Jewish ritual ever was. Even before they became obsolete when Jesus appeared. Before Israel had a system of laws and religious rituals, the faith of godly men and women brought God immense pleasure. And it all focused on faith in a promised deliverer. So above all, in the examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah... We ought to see Jesus. They point us to him. You see, Abel tasted death at his brother's hands. The first person in the Bible recorded as dying, the first murder. Abel tasted death, 
But Jesus tasted death for everyone, for each one of us. He tasted death for us. You see, Enoch was pleasing to God and he didn't see death. Jesus pleased the Father. Remember at his baptism where God, the Father, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Father was pleased to crush him. Was pleased to crush him for our sins and to secure salvation for us. Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark became a vessel through which eight people were saved through the flood. Foreshadowing Jesus, the only way of salvation, the only vessel of salvation, that he is the only Savior, the only Savior. 1 John 4.14 says, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Our cubbies in Awana learned that verse as one of their first verses. We ought to take that with us every day. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And not just the Savior, but the sustainer, the deliverer, the changer, transformer. See, we can trust God. Faith that pleases God often produces surprising results. Abel was murdered for his. Enoch was taken early to heaven. Noah was delivered through a worldwide flood. Okay, so not the uh, run-of-the-mill type of experiences. But God works in amazing and different ways in each person. We can't guarantee a specific outcome for our faith. It's all in God's hands. So my prayer, and, and I hope your prayer will be this, Lord, I give you my heart. I want to please you. I want to seek to reverently act upon your word. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. We need you. We worship you. Lord God, change our hearts. Produce in us the result that you desire. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.